I was petrified of who, who will I be if I don't have my mother holding a mirror up to kind of cast my identity back to me. My mother, her presence is and will still be a really big part of my life. But there's really no other mother that's bigger than her outside of Mother Nature. Steph Jagger's mother, Sheila, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2015. Like many of us, Steph's relationship with her mom is complicated. Watching Sheila's personality and memory disappear only added to the complexity. As an author and coach, Steph is skilled at going deeper and examining her own identity. When she realized that she would be slowly losing the woman who showed her who she is, she decided to turn to another maternal figure for guidance and comfort, Mother Nature. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Steph Jagger was my first ever guest on this podcast back in 2016. She's the queen of turning her wild ideas into a reality. In 2010, she left her home and career behind and went on an incredible journey around the world. She followed winter through five continents. And she set a world record by skiing more than 4 million vertical feet in a single year. It's the equivalent of going down Mount Everest from summit to sea level over 130 times. A lot has happened since that trip around the world. Steph married the wonderful Chris Rutgers, the guy who founded Outdoor Outreach. She wrote a book about her ski expedition called Unbound, and she became a life coach. But in 2015, Steph's family was rocked by her mom's Alzheimer's diagnosis. Her new book, Everything Left to Remember, revisits Steph's deep connection to nature and explores the two-week camping and road trip she went on with her mom. Steph Jagger, welcome back to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Shelby, I'm so happy to be here. Episode one to, to today. I love it. Okay, so you were guest number one in 2016. It is a really long time ago. So much has changed. So, yes, you know, so much has changed and also so much hasn't. Like totally. here, here you are, here I am. We're still living wild ideas. We're still having deep, amazing conversations. We're still using the outdoors to kind of transform and integrate and digest our lives. And it's just a, a bit of a different phase with a few more wrinkles. What made you write this book? You know, my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's in 2015. And about a year after that, um, I got a, a, a hit, an intuitive hit that I should go on a trip with her. I mean, there was really not a lot of time, you know, when someone gets a diagnosis like that, there's not a lot of time that you feel you have left to you know, not to be extractive, but to kind of mine their wisdom and, and pack it up and bundle it up and, and take it with you. And I really felt like there was an opportunity, you know, that, that presented itself time-wise. My, my first book was yet to come out. And I thought before that goes and I get busy and the career takes off, like, let me take this moment with my mother and, and really see if I can know her on on a level that I 
didn't feel I had as I moved through my teens and, and early 20s and early 30s. So wait, the first book hadn't even come out? No, I went on the trip with her in 2016 and Unbound came out in 2017. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So the trip itself was was just that. It was, you know, you know, similar but very different to to Unbound. Similar in that I went on the journey not knowing I was going to write about it. Different in that they were wildly different pursuits. You know, one was really, you know, Unbound was my my maiden voyage, you know, literally uh, in archetypal maiden trying to understand as an individual what my source of empowerment was in the world and how I was going to use my mentality and my physicality and my energy to, to understand who I was as an individual. This was really, this journey with my mother was really much, much more about how I was going to begin to step into, you know, using nature, using the outdoors, how I was going to step into more of the mother archetype, which quintessentially the question there is not, you know, where is my power and individualization, but what will I allow to be created through me? And I thought, I have to learn this from her before she goes. No, when you you first got the diagnosis of your mom having Alzheimer's, what did you do? What did you think? How did you react? Well, the the actual announcement of the diagnosis was not as impactful to me, uh, maybe as, as people might think that it would be, mostly Shelby, because I knew. Mm, this yeah. this is not this is not like a surprise party kind of disease <laughs> you know this is this is a uh a slow loss of very small things little things at a time for somebody um you know living with a person every day it it actually might not even be noticeable but because i was uh, she was in Vancouver. I was living in San Diego and kind of coming back every handful of months. And and because of that, going away and coming back, I was noticing things I think that my family who was living so close to my mother just weren't able to. Um, and so, you know, by the time she got diagnosed, I mean, we I was a year and a half into conversations, difficult conversations, um, primarily with my dad saying there's something going on. So the diagnosis actually to me, I don't know if relief is the right word. Um, Confirmation probably was the right word with that. Um, But the, the more worrisome stuff was before that, like what is going on? Why, why is no one paying attention? Does nobody else see this? Am I going crazy? So the diagnosis itself wasn't uh, wasn't the most difficult part of this. I think the most difficult part is when we collectively see things that we don't want to. After her mother's diagnosis, Steph's family had to grapple with the journey ahead of them. Luckily, Sheila was diagnosed early on in her disease's progression, so there was still time to do a little adventuring. Steph and her mom flew to Montana, where they hiked, rode horses, and camped in Yellowstone, Grand Teton, and Glacier National Parks. So you go camping with your mom, and the first thing that comes to mind when I tell anybody your book is about going on this beautiful camping trip with your mother who got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, 
anybody who's had a family member with Alzheimer's is like, huh? How do you do that? Like, that's, you know, there's also a lot of different forms of Alzheimer's. So Johnny's reading your book and he's like, my mom could not have done what Steph's mom did, even at a diagnosis that early on. She had a different form of it. Um, your mom, it seems like at least in the beginning, she didn't wander off completely. Yeah, that that started, uh, this was quite early on in her diagnosis. And so, you know, there's a section in the book that I write about where I'm, I'm encouraging her to go use the bathroom facilities that are not too far from, you know, where we were camping. And that nervousness I could feel in her of like, ooh, you're not going to come with me? Am I going to make sure I could get back? But I was in eyesight, like the the sight line to the bathroom was was there. A year later, there's no way I would have done that. So it was a very unique period of time within her diagnosis and within her progression that number one, she wasn't going to wander. I mean, we were glued together the whole trip. There was really no no place for her to wander. I would have heard a tent zipper opening or I would have, you know, those types of things. And number two, um, her physicality was phenomenal um, and always had been. I mean, she was a really, really active, fit outdoors woman. It's just so amazing. Like one, as adults, we don't take always, not all of us, you know, you get to a certain age, you don't always take a trip with just your mom. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I read this thing, Jesse Itzler was a, a guest in he kind of broke everything down in numbers. And he was like, listen, if you see your parents twice a year and the average age a parent can live in, let's say 90 and they're 70 and you see them twice a year, you got uh, like, you know, what, what am I doing my math? 40, 40 times less to see them. I don't know. He did. He broke it down and I was like, yeah. oh my God, I have like 10 times left to see my mother. Um, and I booked a trip with her to Hawaii and we did everything together and it was so weird and so fun. But camping is like a whole other thing than staying in a hotel stuff. So like I still, <laughs> I, I'm like pretty blown away that you took your mom camping in the outdoors. So if you read her book, they go horseback riding. I'm not going to give tons away, but they go horseback riding. They go whitewater rafting. They do these things that you wouldn't think that you would take someone who just got diagnosed with Alzheimer's on. Although I don't know a lot about Alzheimer's. We're still learning a lot about it. That's right. And every case is is a little bit different, I'm guessing. Yeah, some are similar. Absolutely. I mean, there's another component, there's a lot that happens within different forms of dementia, Alzheimer's included, that, um, that have kind of personality shifts where, where a lot of frustration and anger can show up. That hasn't been my mother's experience. And, and that certainly wasn't, you know, there's little, little bits of time occasionally where frustration showed up, but that was also, um, a really key component of this is, is I knew and this is also about knowing the person with the diagnosis, right? I knew if she was on a horse, being guided, given instructions, checked in with, you know, on occasion, there wasn't going to be a panic or a frustration or an outburst of anger that that sometimes shows up with um, a further progression or with different forms of, of Alzheimer's or dementia or with different people who have Alzheimer's and dementia. And so a lot of it came down to kind of knowing her very well and knowing me and what I felt I was capable of providing. And, and you know, there, there is another portion in the book I remember with the whitewater rafting. I remember calling the place and saying, what's the easiest water? You know, what's, what's basically a, 
Class glide one. down yeah. the river because if she goes out of the boat, I don't know, that was a worrisome thing for me. And so everybody involved was was really wonderful. This is the easiest one. This is how we're going to deal with the fact that she will not remember the safety instructions. Like everyone was extraordinarily helpful as we went through this. Um, so there was a lot of it that really had to do with knowing her, the stage in her progression, her physicality, her really strong physical body going into this. And also, you know, so much of the book, Shelby, comes down to... My mom was a person who showed their love demonstratively. She she was a very physical person. Um, she didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about emotions. And so I knew we had to be doing things. I knew it was uncomfortable for her to just be kind of sitting and talking. And so we had to be going hiking. We had to be going horseback riding. There had to be activities for us to do. That was That's kind of her love language. And so that was a really big doorway in for me, as well as a place where she could experience some joy. Instead of feeling frustrated or sad, Steph tried to go with the flow and meet her mom where she was in that moment. In the book, Steph writes about the first time Sheila didn't recognize her. Rather than try to make her mom remember, Steph joined her in this new reality. That shift in mindset made for a much more pleasant experience for the two of them. When we come back, Steph talks about using humor when things got difficult, why it was so important to take her mom out in nature, and what Sheila thought of Steph writing a book about their trip. While the mother-daughter road trip was full of quality time spent in nature, there were also days when Steph got annoyed with her mom. But it was important to put that aside and recognize that with Alzheimer's disease, her mother would never remember as much as she did right then. Steph wanted to seize the moment. She tried to make the best of their time together and let herself laugh about some of the little things her mom did. Another thing I thought was really interesting is how you use humor to sort of deal with something that's challenging. Mm. You know, like... You talk about how your mom ordered a margarita and then like forgets that you drink a whole margarita and gets another one. And I was like, that's really cool that you can just laugh about that. Yeah. I mean, they're there. Listen, laughter is holy. I mean, it's, it is. it's it's you when you're sitting in fear and when you're sitting in ego and when you're sitting in, you know, ego is dead serious and fear is very serious. And so I, whenever I can introduce some levity that's that's a that's going to bring me to a place where I can add in curiosity, where I can start to get playful with something, where I can learn more about somebody and their experience. So, you know, that that's a really important component for me. This is this is any of these long-term degenerative diseases are just excruciating. I mean, they're just a horrific experience for the person going through it and, and for all of the different um, family members and friends involved. And I don't know how you do that kind of endurance event without moments, glimmers of 
of hilarity. I mean, there's, there's stories that, you know, my dad and I and, and my siblings, you know, have about my mom and what's happened that, that at, at first glance, you could look at and go, that's really sad. And then at second glance, you can go, but she was talking to the stuffed animal like it was a living child. You know, it was, it, it's so sweet. It's hard not to laugh. So I think that's been a really important component of how to survive through these, these again, any, any disease, any long-term, especially those long-term degenerative diseases. Yeah, the, the levity part is important. So Johnny, when I met his mother, she had Alzheimer's. And I was like, what if she doesn't like me? And he's like, it's okay. She won't remember. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Johnny. It's a hard disease. But what I thought was so interesting in your book, there's lots of studies about people with Alzheimer's who, when they listen to songs, mm. they can kind of like remember, especially if it was a song they listened to mm -hmm. in high school and something that like really made an impact on them. But also these nature moments can really, they're just visceral and it sort of can make someone remember almost because it's just so beautiful and magical. What sort of role did nature play in your journey together? And like, how, how was it having this like incredibly deep experience with your mom and this really kind of wild, unfortunate, but, but pretty pivotal part in both of your lives in this backdrop of camping under the stars. And of course you're in Montana. So you're in like the biggest yeah. nature you can possibly be in. Yeah. It was phenomenal. I, I think there's two ways that nature really played a role. Um, the first is specifically with um, Alzheimer's and dementia and different um, brain focused diseases. There's a loss of cognitive ability, right? And so there's a loss of cognitive ability to communicate and intellectualization um, uh, an ability to maybe to have a, a conversation or talk rationally about something or logically about something. And so to me, what that really leaves us with is the facility of our body instead of our mind. And how do we communicate with our bodies? We use our senses. So to surround ourselves, to surround our bodies and our senses with with the smell of pine trees, with the, with the look of those huge mountains in front of us, with the sound of gravel underneath our feet as we walk on a trail. With, I mean, it, it helps us to ground into our bodies and just let our bodies have a conversation with one another because our brains can't or couldn't at that point. And so that allowed me to sink into you know what, as a person who really likes to talk and really likes to have a conversation, just to follow into an embodiment and hold my mother's hand as we walked along the trail. I mean, I felt like we were having a deeper conversation that way, maybe than we ever had. And really nature set, set the path for that, set the example for that. The second part that I would say was really important for me, and this is more of a kind of existential yearning inside of me and, and maybe yearning isn't the right word. It, it was really more of a, I was petrified of, of who, who will I be? Who am I? If I don't have my mother holding a mirror up to kind of cast my identity back to me. I mean, that's a consistent, our, our mothers, whether we look like them or not, are our first mirror 
of, of what is how we understand our own identity in the world. And Shelby, you know, my, my experiences in nature, my, my ability in the first book in Unbound to go to nature as a source of wisdom, I mean, it just became obvious to me, like, of course, it's going to be nature. My mother is, her presence is and will still be a really big part of my life. But there's, there's really no other mother that's bigger than her outside of Mother Nature. And so, you know, the idea of who will cast my identity back to me, who will hold me, who will provide nurturing and grounding, that's Mother Nature. I tend to turn to nature when I need comfort. Being outside helps us process, it reminds us of what's important, and it shows us who we are, the same way our moms do. Years after the trip, Steph decided to write a book about their time together on the road. You were sort of able to share with your mother that you've been writing about it, and she was sort of able to share with you that she wanted you to. Is that right? Some yeah, ways? yeah, ish in some ways. So we we went on the journey together. A while after that, the quote unquote knock on the door, you should write a book about this, arrived. I was nervous about that. Um, but it was clear, you know, and I okay, I'm I'm gonna say yes to that. And so I went and visited her. She was further along by that point in her progression. And I said, uh, we were out for a walk and I said, you know, mom, what do you think about me writing a book about, about you, about us? And she kind of paused and was like, about, about me? Like, why, why would you do that? There's nothing special or unique. And I said, yeah, about you and, and, and me. And she paused again and, and she looked at me very concerned and she said, would I have to write any of it? And I was like, no, not at all. You wouldn't have to come up with a word. And then just, I just watched her body just whew, relax. And she said, okay, you write it, I'll walk it. It was a very, and it was, that moment was one of a lot of lucidity that, that you write it, I'll walk it. I mean, I can still feel it. It gives me shivers in my body. Have you been able to share the book a little bit with your mom? Oh, yes and no. So no from a, I wouldn't be able to read her anything and get any sort of cognitive reflection back or digestion of that's, that's kind of beyond where she is in her progression. Um, my dad sent me, so, so my mom's in Vancouver, Canada. I've, I've been able to visit her only once actually during the pandemic because of border restrictions and restrictions in her care facility, which, which I have a lot of respect for. And so my dad sent me a video. So I, I sent him a very early copy of the book. He took it in to her and took a video of her just holding the book and she wouldn't let it go. Oh. Like he went to go take it back and she was like, no, this is mine. And so that was really touching. Like she, something inside of her knew, I think, what this was. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I it just was, teared up. yeah, it was really cool. Really cool video. <laughs> What's the feedback been so far? I mean, right now it's February while we're recording, so not a ton of people have gotten to read it yet. Yeah. The, the fear, gosh, this is, I got covered in shivers and, and, and it's just been really, really wonderful. Um, 
I think the feedback thus far has been probably twofold. One, really, really centering on the mother-daughter. Like I originally thought, you know, is this book going to land outside of the Alzheimer's community? And and I think the answer is a resounding yes. Like this is a this is a really big exploration of mother daughter, and and the feedback kind of within that sounds something like, I got to phone my mom, or this has given me hope. Like we're all going to be okay, and especially in a time where we all don't feel like we're going to be okay. Like what? what is even the state of the world? What, what is the state of the natural world? You know, to have something that, that provides a bit of a cushion to be like, we're all going to be okay. I, I, that has been the main feedback and that's been the most meaningful. And I think Shelby, you know, some of that is, you know, I'll take credit of, of great. I wrote, I wrote a book and, and channeled some good stuff and put myself in, in situations where I was able to write some things. Well, there is also inside of this book, so much of my mother's energy. And so that's, you know, in a time when I think we all could use some really big mother energy, I think that's been the biggest piece of feedback is that that's coming through in this book. And and I'll give credit to my mom for that. Listening to Steph makes me want to go hug my mom. Our mothers are the first people we ever meet. That relationship can be sacred, but it can also be fraught with challenges and pain. I can only imagine that Steph's grief around her mother's journey with Alzheimer's has been really tough. Sometimes going after our wild ideas means taking the hardest parts of our lives and getting really close to them, examining them, and then using them to create something new. I really wanted to ask you about advice on living wildly. Like, I think the first time I talked to you, we said starting lines are the most important. They're the hardest. You have to get to the starting lines. And recently, I asked you about finish lines. You know, a lot of times when we finish something grand, there's this release. There's this physical exhaustion that just happens. But then there's this mental exhaustion. Um. And sometimes that can lead to sort of like a depression. So I guess my question for you is like, what would older, wiser Steph say now about not only how to live wildly, but how to approach the starting line and then the finish? Yeah, the the older, wiser version of me would, would have a handful of things to say. N- number one, inside of the peak experience especially if it's like endurance based, if you're training for the Olympics, if you're writing a long book, if you're going on a year skiing trip around the world, et cetera, are there moments inside of that peak experience where you can begin to discern if something is beginning to feel extractive? That's a, that's a line that I, I am looking for now before the younger self of me would be like, I can extract as much as I want from myself and be an empty tank, you know, tomorrow and probably the next day and probably the next day and probably the next day, you know, and that would lead to a crash for me. And so now I'm looking at the, that line of is saying, would saying yes to this 
uh, or no to this or setting boundaries in this way, like what, where's that line of where I can continue to give with as much of my energy and wholeheartedness as I, as I can. And where is that line of where it becomes to feel extractive for me? So that would be a bit of advice about, about during a period of long haul effort, I'll say. The other advice that I would would give is to really pay deep, deep attention to the cyclicality. I think in the society that we live in, we're just expected to produce and consume both at a certain level consistently 24-7, 365 days a year. That is not the way any of the natural world works. It is not the way we work. And so how do I allow myself to find my own cycles and rhythms daily, monthly, yearly, much longer term? Is it okay that I know myself well enough to know that I'm making something up 2 to 3 p.m. is like kind of sleepy time for me. And and will I allow myself to have kind of a chill hour at that time? And that's okay. And not push through and move to extraction, etc. That's a daily example, right? Outside of that from a creative standpoint, it my my experience has been that it is not realistic that I'm going to be writing 2,500 words a day every day of the year. No, I'm, I haven't written, written in six months. I'm okay with that. I don't, I'm not in some scarcity mode that it's gone and it'll never come back. I know it's cyclical. I watch the moon. I watch the sun. Like these things go away and come back. This is, this is exactly how nature works. So, so that's a, big piece of wisdom that I tune into now is where can I begin to know myself, know my cycles, know my rhythms of creativity, of productivity, and and will I allow them to actually move in cycles instead of creating a static, unmoving line of you must produce and consume this much every day, every hour in the same way. Just not how we were built. And I think this is, you know, the, the one of the biggest archetypal initiations is the initiation that is known as life, death, life. It's, you know, big circle. And our, our society tends to look at the death part and go like, I would like to avoid that. I'd like to avoid the grief and the loss and the, and the, just horrific kind of mix of emotions that comes with that part of the initiation. And what what that ends up doing is it suspends an initiation. We think by pushing off death, we just keep life. We just keep living more life. If I don't look at that, there's more life. If I don't look at that, there's more life. And it just suspends the initiation. And what it is, is it's it's a living death. It, It flips it upside down. And that's a pretty intense way of saying that, but it would be like saying to autumn and winter, you are not allowed. You are not allowed. And to be quite frank, everything would end up dying. And it would be so overwhelming, 
so overwhelming to just have spring, summer, spring, summer, spring, summer, and then just nothing. So I, I think that's a really, really important reason why nature is, again, such a model. It really is the model of our master cycle of life, death, life. Nature has so much to teach us about life, like the rhythms of productivity and rest and the realities of life and death. Steph's trip with her mother taught her not only about embracing her mother's new identity, but also about embracing her own. Steph Jagger, thank you so much for having this beautiful conversation with me. Steph's book is out today, April 26th. So go get it wherever you buy books. It's really a touching read and it's beautifully written. It's one I think anyone who is a mother or daughter or who knows someone living with Alzheimer's will love. You can follow Steph's latest work on her website at stephjagger.com. That's S T E P H. J-A-G-G-E-R dot com. You can also follow her on Instagram at Steph Jagger. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Fun fact, Annie Fassler has an awesome little kid. Sylvia is busy doing capoeira in Brazil right now. And Chelsea Davis just got a really awesome tattoo. Our executive producers are Paolo Motila and Jill Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow this show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>